0: Dear President Biden and Vice President Harris, First, let me offer my congratulations on taking office. Not only did you both campaign arduously and effectively to be nominated and subsequently win the election, to keep it real, it was looking kind of dicey there a couple of weeks ago. Yet the process of our democracy prevailed, even though it was surrounded by armed troops this time. But it won out for now. This is a process that you, members of Congress, justices of the Supreme Court, state and local officials, all of us are entrusted to maintain, repair and evolve. The last team on the job didn't leave much in the way of notes, but definitely left a mess for you to clean up. It's fortunate that you do not need on the job training. That much is true. Yet, how you go about your jobs is more important than
1: ever. There are many statutes that could be used to hold white nationalists accountable. The failure to do so is not as a result of not having the right tool or the right statute, it's not having the will.
0: President Biden, when you said in your inaugural speech that your soul is in this, that you will give us your best every day, it was the first time I believed the politicians' promises. I'm glad that you're in office and hopeful that we will all help you out on the works ahead. Some of that work is in consequences, doling them out to bad actors, and dealing with the results of the last four years. On today's show, we have two historians, coverage from the state capitol on Inauguration Day, local advocates demanding that a public official step down, another organization asking Congress to press pause and consider the full consequences of the new rules, a local journalist on whether the weatherman is out of bounds, and a roundup from the roundhouse. It's Nomono, handling what needs to be handled. Let's get to work. Part of the misinformation and disinformation that created the environment for rioters to attack the Capitol, yes, I'm going to keep saying it because that's what happened, were false claims that the election was fraudulent. One of the purveyors of that lie was freshman Republican Congresswoman Yvette Herrell of the 2nd District. Common Cause of New Mexico takes issue with the Congresswoman's actions. Executive Director Heather Ferguson joins me to explain why. Recently, Common Cause New Mexico has called for Representative Yvette Herrell to step down from her position. She's a freshman congresswoman. She just took the oath of office a few weeks ago. Why are you calling for her resignation?
2: So I think what you just said there is really the most important piece. It's her oath of office. She took the oath of office because she's supposed to be representing the people of New Mexico. This was the most free and fair election that we have had in our nation's history. It was the most secure. That's been verified not only by our National Secretaries of State's president, Maggie Toulouse-Oliver, here from New Mexico, from the national cyber security folks to all the members of Congress from across the board with the exception of these individuals who continue to want to try to make a call out to challenge electoral votes that were rightfully done. And in doing so, she continues to fan the flames of insurrection. She's violating her oath of office by challenging these electoral votes. And we need her to resign.
0: You all have also called for the resignation of Otero County Commissioner Coy Griffin. Is that for similar reasons?
2: Actually, it's because County Commissioner Griffin has gone a step farther and attended and was par- a participant in those riots and in the insurrection that we saw so violently acted at our nation's Capitol last week. Hmm. He was talking about ensuring that they would have a second gathering or storming of the Capitol on January 20th, where, and this was his quote, blood will run from the building. And that hmm. is inexcusable from an elected official. And that should be something that he should be criminally charged for to threaten the House Speaker and our Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer.
0: Now, that, that's, that's interesting because you're, You mentioned that he should be legally and criminally charged for his incendiary comments. And I'm watching the national news now. And a lot of these lawmakers who have expressed misinformation, disinformation and have made a lot of inflammatory comments are expressing that it is their First Amendment right to do so. How does that hit you?
2: I am a very staunch advocate for the First Amendment, but there is no realm where you can issue death threats and incite violence and kind of that be something that is covered by the First Amendment. Hmm. We have an elected official with a platform to reach members of the public who is trying to encourage his followers to attack and hurt and harm and kill other elected officials. I have no idea why this man is possibly still allowed to maintain his public office right now.
0: What are some ways that people can talk to each other so we can all understand each other and come to actual conversation that we can agree on upon things that are called facts?
2: The number one issue that we always point people to, especially when it comes from ensuring that not only are you not being misinformed by individuals that you may trust but also making sure that you're not exposing yourself to misinformation that is just out there. And it's really considering your source and trying to look for where are the actual facts in here. And the facts are that the presidential election was firmly and fully decided. And you don't get to just make up facts or make up lawsuits if you don't get what you want. As a mother, that's the number one issue I try to instill in my child is Mm. it's tough when you don't win, but you need to accept it as the truth and move on forward from it.
0: What do you see for our political landscape if we have two sides that are so opposed in just the functions of government outside of any political philosophy? Any predictions of where we go from here?
2: What has been the most saddening side of the work that I've done with Common Cause in the last six years is seeing how much more tribalistic partisan politics has become mm. over over this time period, especially in these last four years. And I think that it is even more saddening that they have to close our state capitol simply to protect our elected officials. I think that that is not what America stands for. That's not what New Mexico certainly stands for. And so my hope would be with some time, and I think it is going to take some time, that these partisan fires that keep happening, these fights, will begin to start to dissipate. We're a country in crisis, and we're a state in crisis, and it needs to be treated as such. Everyone needs to try to find a way to come together, and if they have already created some insurrection, they've already participated in a lot of this, they need to own that. They need to own that what they did was wrong, and they need to move away from that.
0: She is Heather Ferguson. She is the Executive Director for Common Cause New Mexico. Heather, thanks
2: again. Thanks so much, Khalil.
0: We've been reaching out to Representative Harrell since the day of the attack on the Capitol in early January for an interview about her vote to overturn the election results. After phone calls and multiple emails, Harold refused to be interviewed backlash of the attempted insurrection on January 6th, there are calls being made to create a new domestic terrorism designation for the Department of Justice. Not so fast, says 135 civil rights organizations who recently sent a letter to Congress decrying the move. Here with me to explain why and why they are fighting the designation is Becky Monroe. She's the director for Fighting Hate and Bias program for the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Becky, welcome to Nimono.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: So a coalition of civil rights and human rights organizations is calling on the Department of Justice to use the terrorism laws already on the books to prosecute the people involved in the insurrection this year. Who's in the coalition and what are their concerns?
1: The Leadership Conference is a coalition of over 200 civil rights organizations. It includes organizations that fight for racial justice, that represent communities that have been targeted for hate across the board. So it's really a a very diverse group that have come together because they see this as a civil rights priority. Based on who signed this letter, we are organizations who are proud to work alongside communities that have been fighting white nationalism and white supremacy for generations. So we are very happy to see this renewed focus and a recognition of the real danger the white nationalists pose. And I think One thing we think is really important to note is that there are over 50 domestic terrorism statutes that could be used. There are hate crime statutes. There are many statutes that could be used to hold white nationalists accountable. The failure to do so is not as a result of not having the right tool or the right statute. Mm -hmm. It's not having the will, Mm -hmm. the will to prioritize where the real threat comes from. And we know this not only from the civil rights community, but the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security even under the Trump administration acknowledged that the greatest threat to national security comes from white nationalists, from white, white supremacists. The FBI director testified as such. So I think the problem with creating a new domestic terrorism charge is that we know from recent history and, and in history from a few years ago that this approach, while maybe it's well-intentioned, ultimately in the system that we have now will be used in a way that will harm black and brown communities.
0: I think you mentioned the word and the phrase is that the government officials and lawmakers have lacked the will to take this very serious problem on. What words do you have for public officials about the work they should be doing from preventing this stuff from gaining momentum?
1: The first thing I would say and that I always say is. Listen to the people who are targeted the most. Listen to the people who have been fighting racism and discrimination, often for generations. They should be the people who are guiding your actions. I think one of the things in this country that we need to talk about if we're really going to get at the root of white supremacy is talking about both truth and reconciliation as well as reparations. Recognizing that those things are tied together. And there's a lot of raw pain right now because I think talking to people, I think when you saw what happened on January 6th, it was horrifying. But it was also deeply disturbing to communities who literally had to fight this since the beginning of our country to see this sort of shock that people had, that this was real, that this is who we are. It is absolutely a part of who we are. It is also absolutely true that the people who are fighting back the most, that are fighting for this democracy the most, are from the very communities that had all the reason to give up on this country and have not.
0: And finally, though the coup attempt was just a couple weeks ago, it feels long ago. How can people keep the reality of what that was? How can we keep that?
1: Well, honestly, I think conversations like the one we're having, I hope to do that. I think making sure that we all maintain that focus and to insist that we do not lose sight of the role that white supremacy played, not only in that insurrection, but that has played and continues to play in violence across the country. I do think that we've seen a local movement for Truth and Reconciliation commissions, so cities that have been adopting that. I think that's an excellent way to approach this. I think there are many things that we can do at the local level and at the national level, but we have to insist that as we talk about unity, We talk about it in a way that requires truth and i think that this next administration can help support that but it's going to require all of us to sort of keep them accountable to that
0: becky monroe is the director of the fighting hate and bias program for the leadership conference on civil and human rights becky thank you for being on the show please come on the show again in the future
1: it was a wonderful conversation thank you
0: in examining the events of one six we at namono headquarters decided to get in touch with someone who spent a lot of time in the capitol building but now has time to reflect on his time of service and the events leading up to the inauguration. We gave a call to New Mexico's former senior senator, Tom Udall. How are you doing today, Mr. Udall? You've been out of office for less than a month now. What has that been like for you?
3: (laughs) Well, first of all, it's uh, the best decision I ever made. I left Washington right as all the protests and things were happening right around uh, January the 6th. And Jill and I just took time to travel across the country I mm-hmm. uh, really enjoyed getting to see things and see the country on the southern route it was in the middle of the winter we had a little bit of snow at one point but otherwise we just loved the two of us being together and talk about where we were going from here
0: for all the time that you both spent in DC and in New Mexico It must have been really nice to reflect upon. This is your first term out of office. But as you mentioned, a few days after your time as a senator concluded, we all know that there was an attack on the building you worked in for years. What were you thinking as you heard about it and saw it?
3: I was actually there in Washington. We didn't leave until a couple of days later. On the 6th, I have always been a member of the House Gymnasium. And so about 1230, I'd gone over there for about an hour workout. And it ended up, as I started to leave, the officers in the exit said, we're not allowing anybody out. It's too dangerous. Hmm. And my wife had been, we were living in a house that was close to the Capitol and they had been evacuated from that street. So I ended up spending the next seven hours. I got a bite to eat in the cafeteria and then the next seven hours in the gymnasium in lockdown. Hmm. And then we were notified at about, 20 minutes of eight that if we wanted to depart they recommended maybe we wait a little longer but I just thought well I'd give it a try and I was so close to home that I wouldn't have much problem and so I spent seven hours while all of that was going in in lockdown in one of the house buildings not in the capitol in the Rayburn House Gymnasium.
0: What was going through your mind?
3: Seeing the destruction of such a sacred institution, it just it really hurt me. I mean I -hmm. I served twenty two years in the Congress, House and Senate, and then eight years as New Mexico's attorney general and and As you know, for a big part of my career, I worked in law enforcement. I believe in the rule of law. Mm -hmm. And and all of that was just being defaced and degraded. And it just looked like terrible violence that was going on and felt really hurt by it.
0: What consequences do you think need to be doled out for the people who attempted the insurrection that day?
3: These are criminal offenses. I mean, the, the insurrection is a very, very extreme measure that was taken by these people. that It was inspired, no doubt, by President Trump. It was planned for a long time. And I think they should be punished under the law. The other side of this that I was very proud of is the House and the Senate were not deterred. And I think they stayed there for about six hours until two or three in the morning and finished their work. Mm -hmm. So I was very proud of them. It was great to see some of the Republicans speak out in a very strong way against the violence, and I hope this is a an indicator of a new day. You know, one of my good friends in the Congress was John Lewis, and mm. a lot of people looked at Bloody Sunday as that was a defining event in the South for civil rights, and then you saw change from there, and things moved quickly in the passage of civil rights laws, and I think there's the same kind of disillusionment and alienation in our country and i hope that we'll all work together and work with our elected representatives to get the things done in a legislative way and each of us individually i think there's a role for us to play individually to try to bring people together and to be one nation again and not be so divided and polarized
0: wise words from former Senator Tom Udall of the great state of New Mexico, Senator Udall, thank you very much again for talking with us.
3: Thank you so much. Real pleasure. Take care. Have a good day.
0: You too. Anxieties were high around the country after the attempted coup, and for us too. News reporters have not been popular among Trump supporters. FBI warned that armed protests were being planned at all 50 state capitals during the week of the inauguration. Nomono's executive producer Marisa DeMarco was in Santa Fe as the day approached to cover potential unrest. But Trump supporters protesting election results stayed home. Instead, as the country entered the first hours of the Biden-Harris administration, Marisa reflected on this moment in U.S. history with her fellow local reporters.
4: In Santa Fe last week, concrete barricades blocked roads near the roundhouse and video camera surveillance carts popped up along the perimeter of new fencing. Lawmakers started the 60-day legislative session there on Tuesday, January 19th, but on Inauguration Day, they weren't in the building because of safety concerns. Thanks for talking with me today, Sean Griswold with New Mexico In Depth. Of course. So we're in the Capitol, it is Inauguration Day, right? What do we see out there?
5: saw a big fence around the roundhouse mm-hmm. uh, saw a lot of police officers state police some national guard members mm-hmm. you know roads are blocked off other than that it was very very quiet the lead up to today there's so much
4: anxiety about what this could be like right can you talk about what you're thinking about and what what you're experiencing is where making our way into this moment?
5: Yeah, I mean, the anxiety around watching everything that happened at the Capitol, plus the history of protests and counter-protests. And in New Mexico, the last several months, you never quite understand what the environment is gonna be. And with this one, it was much different than some of the protests against police because with demonstrations like that, you're always kind of aware of the police and preparing for any police action that could lead to deter a crowd. You know, flashbangs, tear gas, rubber bullets. You kind of know where and understand even when they get information when something might happen that could put you in harm. So you can move and kind of put yourself in position out of harm's way. With the stuff we saw at the Capitol and, you know, things we've seen that are uh, pro-Trump demonstrations in Albuquerque and in Santa Fe, you're dealing with a group of people who are armed, who are civilians, who are in tactical gear and you really don't know what their motivations are going to be. You don't know what kind of training they have. You don't even know how long they've owned that weapon. Mm -hmm. So coming into this one, you know, they were making threats. And then not only that, friends and family around me are watching what's happening. They're reading stories about journalists who have been attacked in D.C. They're not really in this environment. They don't quite understand it from experience the way that I do. They just want to know if I'm being safe. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you just heard my phone went off. Like, that's my mom wondering if I'm OK. I had yeah. to text her and let her know that nothing is happening here. It's that kind of constant communication that you have to have with people just to let them know you're all right.
4: As people are trying to keep you safe, because a lot of co-workers, friends
5: and family like you
4: are, are really worried when they know I'm going to be out here. And they're trying to help you think about preparations or asking what precautions you're going to take. But when you never know what the day is going to be, we walked around the roundhouse there's nothing like it's quiet quiet out there so far and this is when we thought everything was going to happen other times i go to a demonstration and i think it's just going to be a little thing and i'm just kind of out there to see what's up and that's the one where someone gets hurt or someone gets shot or there's a fight or you know what i mean so it's like it's very hard to tell what these situations are going to be when we're heading out
5: yeah and i mean i don't know how much time you spend on the internet just watching message boards I spent a lot of time just seeing what they're talking about, trying to gauge some of what their motivations and attitudes are gonna be with some of these actions. One thing that did give me some relief was over the weekend, which was supposedly gonna be the beginning of these pro-Trump demonstrations, turned into nothing. I saw maybe a dozen people combined between Texas and Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And of course there was nothing shown, nothing happened here in Santa Fe.
4: There has been consequences. People have been jailed or lost their jobs or got killed in the insurrection, right? Maybe some of the fallout from the insurrection with everybody looking so dangerous and just so over the top that maybe they're not feeling so good about aligning themselves with that. Yeah, you know,
5: for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's what gave me a bit more relief was, you know, we saw the Capitol insurrection and we saw the police response to that, which was almost nothing. I Mm -hmm. mean, compared to a dozen protesters who are protesting the police, we've seen full swat teams oh, you know, know. tactical gears mm-hmm. like all the all the military budget <laughs> yeah. equipment that they have purchased is out there in the streets and we didn't see any of that in dc and i think that's what really led to the effort and the violence that we saw with this and the preparation out of all this i mean you saw the national guard deployed across the country and you saw preparation for this on a level that was taken at a serious tone.
1: Mm
5: -hmm. I definitely felt relief from that response of the defense that we have in this country to protect our institutions and to protect our safety actually came out. Even if nobody came and and went against them, their presence was enough, I think, to deter these groups from coming out.
4: All right, well, happy Inauguration Day, Sean. Happy Inauguration Day. (laughs) Stay safe, and we don't know when there's more protests, but I'm sure we'll see each other at them.
5: Uh, Time to get tacos. Yeah, that's
4: right. So I'm here with Gabe Viadora, who is a Lobo reporter here in Santa Fe, Daily Lobo, University of New Mexico student newspaper. So have you done any protest coverage?
6: Honestly, no, no, this is going to be my first time. You know, if anything were to happen, this would have been my first time having a protest like this.
4: Reporters nationally were talking on like industry websites about how it felt different. These warnings that would happen on the 6th is different. Like they felt actually targeted. People did take their gear. Were you thinking about that kind of thing as Mm -hmm. you were facing this today? And did you have like in your mind like a plan about what you would do Mm -hmm. if, right?
6: So I came into New Mexico from the Philippines. And for those that don't know, in the Philippines, It has a really long history of authoritarian government. The media is not a friend. The media in the Philippines is, quite frankly, an enemy. And there's been so many cases of the media being prosecuted for doing their job. Coming from there and seeing what transpired in DC to all those journalists, it made me think like, so I thought I was going to be safe here in America, you know, covering my job. You kind of juxtapose that with the scene in Philippines where my family was trying to immigrate from to come here for a better future. Mm -hmm. And then you see see that stuff happening in DC. You remember the stuff that happened in the Philippines. And Mm -hmm. so it's definitely strange to see that here in such a democratic country. Of course, I was thinking about what was going to happen downtown. I have two bags in my car with protective gear that my editors gave me. I always trying to live by the mantra, you know, what is it? Prepare for the worst, expect the best. Yeah. Right. So.
4: Your student reporting experience is so much different than mine. If you're mm-hmm. going out to protest with protective gear, mm-hmm. right? Like you're just in a different situation. Yeah, you know?
6: I will say that I do feel a lot more comforted by my community here in America. My community of journalists, of course, the Philippines has adamantly protested against all of the prosecutions against journalists there. But at least here, I know that I can feel safe uh, and surrounded by a community that I know will have my back if anything goes to happen, you know?
4: Yeah, I mean, me, you and Sean are sitting here. We're from three different Mm -hmm. news outlets, and we've all kind of formed alliances Mm -hmm. out in the field, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're all kind of keeping eyes on each other Mm -hmm. and trying to keep each other safe and just make sure everyone gets home okay, Mm -hmm. right? Like, Mm -hmm. that's kind of what we do now, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. All my previous reporting years, like, maybe sometimes things would feel a little tense, but I never really felt worried about being out there alone, and Mm -hmm. I wasn't, like, looking around for all the other media to make sure everybody's safe. Like, Mm -hmm. it is different now, Mm -hmm. you know? But maybe it'll be better again in the future, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we didn't have this experience of a protest today but you're gonna keep covering the legislature for that yeah
6: bill? yeah absolutely i'll be following a few police reform bills and of course you know everybody's looking out for that recreational marijuana bill so yeah. i'll be looking out for those in this 60-day session
4: also new this is the first year that reporters have to get a code test every so often yeah to just be in the building yeah,
6: right? yeah. I have to get tested every five days. I mean, it it has its benefits. At least I know if I'm positive or not, you know.
4: All right. Well, we'll look for your legislative reporting. We might have you back on the show to talk about legislative coverage. Yeah, hopefully.
6: I'll be looking forward to it.
4: Okay. thank you. Thank you, Marissa. State Police spokesperson Lieutenant Mark Soriano says the department respects everyone's right to assemble peacefully and express their opinions at the roundhouse. But officers are ready to respond if gatherings become anything other than peaceful. Road closures, he says, will run through the end of the session or until they don't seem needed. For No More Normal, I'm Marisa DiMarco.
0: Mark Ronchetti is back on the air at KRQE letting people know what the weather is like. His political views and support for Trump were on full display in his campaign for Senate just weeks ago. Some people, including journalists, are asking if there's a conflict of interest here. Ryan Lowry is a reporter and the president of the Society of Professional Journalists, Rio Grande chapter. He joins me now. All right, so let me ask. Recent waves of concern have developed as Mark Ronchetti, Republican candidate for Senate in 2020, has returned to his job as a weather reporter for the television station KRQE. The Society for Professional Journalists has a problem with this. Can you explain to me why?
7: Mark Vincetti is a journalist. Some of our membership are in TV, and we have spoken to them, including former Nexstar media employees, who tell us that the way a television news broadcast is put together that even if he is the weatherman, he is likely in on meetings to put that show together, which places him as part of the newsroom, which places him in some of the editorial direction of the show. So you have him now as a former candidate who had centered his campaign on standing with Donald Trump. It kind of is a blanket endorsement of everything Trump has endorsed and said and tweeted. And that includes calling the media the enemy of the people and you know Trump has also implied that violence against the media is okay. We really want to know if Mark Ronchetti stands with those kinds of attacks on the media.
0: Is it customary for such like high profile politically active people to be involved in news media and newsrooms?
7: There's nothing that says a journalist can't run for office, and there's certainly nothing that says journalists can't hold political opinions. There's been kind of a a longstanding ethical line that, you know, as a journalist, you don't put a yard sign for a candidate in front of your house or a, a sticker on your car, that sort of thing. It definitely changes it when a journalist runs for office. And then, like so many things with this last election, it's just different. There was such... A call for attacks on the media.
0: Next Star Media Group is KRQE's parent company. What could you ask them, if anything, about this situation with Mark Ronchetti being on staff?
7: I mean, of course, KRQE and Next Star are allowed to hire anyone they would like. Ronchetti is certainly allowed to be employed and be employed as a meteorologist on a news station. We ask the same questions to KRQE and Nexstar that we asked of Ron Keddy. Where does he stand on attacks on the media? Is it something he's willing to denounce? Is it something station management is willing to denounce? Especially NextStar, nationwide employs a lot of journalists. And among those journalists, one who may or may not accept attacks on the media as a normal, valid thing.
0: Yeah. In his campaign, he had many ads full of racist dog whistles, said that institutional racism isn't real. That's pretty dangerous to have that sort of political view. And then after, you know, the race is over and you don't win, you go back to your media pulpit. A lot of people will associate candidate that person, the weatherman, with those views. And does that shine a bad light on journalism specifically at a time? Like you said, you know, trust in the media has eroded to the point where, you know, there's politicians, namely President Trump, claiming to attack the media. This is not good for the profession.
7: No, it definitely erodes it. In a debate, televised debate said he doesn't believe there's institutional racism. You know, and again, he's working in a very diverse city with a diverse staff. I would assume that many who work with him would vehemently disagree with the fact that there's not institutional
0: racism, as I'm sure many of them have seen that in their careers. Hmm. I want to thank you so much for being on the show. He's Ryan Lowry, president of the Society of Professional Journalists, Rio Grande Chapter, and a fantastic journalist himself. Thanks so much, Ryan. This is great. Thank you, Khalil. This is No More Normal. I'm your host, Khalil Ecolona. I got suspended from school once. Get this. I'm a senior in high school, so our last day of classes was a week before the rest of the schools, right? So I decided to cut my seventh period class, which was gym. You heard me right. I got suspended for cutting my last class ever in high school, which was gym. Being class president didn't make matters any better for me. As a consequence, my mother and school administration came up with the idea to have me sit in the office for a day after I was done with high school. Fun. It's all about consequences. Stay with us. No More Normal is brought to you by Your New Mexico Government, a collaboration between KUNM, New Mexico PBS, and The Santa Fe Reporter. Funding for our coverage comes from the New Mexico Local News Fund, the Kellogg Foundation, and KUNM listeners like you. Support for public media provided by the Thornburg Foundation. Hear us each week on KUNM Sundays at 11 a.m. Find past episodes online at KUNM.org or wherever you look for podcasts. Some of those who participated in 1-6 were once members of the military. To get some insight about how people who served and swore to protect the Constitution could commit acts against it, I reached out to Dr. Robert F. Jefferson, Jr., who focuses on race, military history, and the 20th century. I talked to him about where we are and what we face from here on out. So many people were surprised by the coup attempt this year You've long studied and written books about military history with an emphasis on race. As January 6th unfolded, what was on your mind that comes from that research?
8: Well, frankly, I wasn't surprised because um, two points. The first one is, is that this country historically has had a convergence of what I consider to be the gray line and the long blue line. What I mean by that is, you know, if you go all the way back to basically the end of the Civil War, with the passage of the 1866 Civil Rights Bill, Mm -hmm. you see in response to that, the birth of the Ku Klux Klan in a place like Pulaski, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. Many of those members of that Ku Klux Klan, of that white supremacist chapter, were basically former Confederate Army veterans. Mm. And it's really interesting that you see this happening now because if you notice yesterday, our new president talked about how his administration was going to fight against white supremacy and domestic terrorism, right? Yes. Well, the Ku Klux Klan, a white supremacist group and they engaged in domestic terrorism against newly emancipated Mm African-Americans as a result of the widespread domestic terrorism that took place in many parts of the South during that period. You had a new president, Ulysses Grant, who decided that he was going to create they say office of attorney general in order to look into those bouts of domestic terrorism. Hmm. We're basically reliving this. So there is a close connection between military service and basically the policing that has taken place. Hmm. So these groups, these militia groups are a mixture of all of that. What happened on January 6th was basically a bubbling up. I think that convergence that I talked about.
0: We're seeing more talk now about racism in the military and how some of the people participating in the capital C's were veterans. You just showed the historical link to that. Do you have any insights to why that has happened? I mean, and let's go back from the inception of the Ku Klux Klan being former Confederate soldiers all the way to 2021.
8: Another part of that, if you think about that race works through basically militarization and also policing, right?
7: Mm-hmm.
8: In that moment, at the end of the Civil War and the very beginning of Reconstruction, we see the militarization of American society really start to take root. And who better to organize that than basically former veterans? It's something that the military has had to deal with throughout much of its recent history. Mm hmm. But I also think that another thing that happened is is that we see also in the current basically military operations, particularly in Afghanistan and Iraq, we're seeing veterans becoming radicalized to the point where they are starting to engage in these types of uh, activities. And in fact, our FBI a little over a decade ago basically issued a report talking about this domestic terrorism and where it was coming from. Think about it. It's a domestic, basically investigative organization. Yes. They were looking globally at this and seeing how it played out and saying that those veterans that were fighting there, they were becoming radicalized and they need to be paid careful attention to. So what we saw on January 6th was the fullest expression of that type of Militarized sentiment, I think.
0: The day of the inauguration, news broke out that some National Guards troops were being sent home. The Pentagon hasn't said exactly why. But if it's because of racist beliefs or support for the coup, if they were sent away, then you have a bunch of people, the government trained to use weapons, to think tactically. They're feeling very angry and they're in a losing position. What do you think should happen?
8: The one thing that I think is going to happen is that the military in itself it's going to have to do a lot of self-examination, like what is it about basically military service that tends to lend itself to this type of radicalization and with race basically being the pivot for all of that, right? Yeah. They're going to have to do some soul searching as to, okay, what what is it about it that basically attracts these type of individuals and groups? And then they got to start talking about, okay, how do the institution in itself, and talking about the military, how do they – basically address this early on so that those individuals understand that this is not the way that that they should operate in a democratic society. Mm -hmm. We're in a period right now, if history is our guide, that we will see a lot of basic emphasis being placed on, okay, let's try to understand this. And then let's not only try to understand this, but let's also make sure that we're able to combat it in the near future. Yeah. Military. You, you probably know this story quite well. The military in itself is seen as being like one of the leading institutions of desegregation and integration in American society. Right. Mm-hmm. But a part of that is there's this element of exclusion is also opportunity of service that they have tried historically to try to deal with. We're in another moment where that's happening.
0: And I find that interesting now that here we are in 2021 and the military and law enforcement as well are gonna have to go through and essentially purge their personnel of these actors. It doesn't seem like it's gonna be a very easy task, and it seems like something that could generate or create more sympathizers for some of these more extreme movements. And you mentioned this a little bit earlier, President Biden, he went as far as to mention the fight against white supremacy in his inaugural address, and he was one of the first things he mentioned. Is this the first direct reference we've had from a president outlining the work in front of the country?
8: Yes, indeed. It is the first time. In fact, if you notice quite a bit of the conversation, that national discussion that's taken place, you have commentators trying to figure out, okay, where did this come from? Mm -hmm. Is he the first? And then also, has this situation bubbled up to the point where, Now, with the president taking the lead, maybe the rest of society is going to be more conscious of having this presence in American society. I would argue that it's always been at the forefront of presidential administrations. They just have not articulated it to the public in a more explicit manner. Biden is the first one to do that. He's the first one to basically explicitly call attention to it. And say that basically his administration is going to, they're going to address the problem.
0: With that in mind, what's missing from the public conversation right now as far as like the next steps to take?
8: Honestly, I actually think that you have to look at the linkages and also the vestiges of it and how it's deeply embedded in almost every aspect of American society. I Mm -hmm. think we have to have a general conversation about how deeply ingrained basically racism is in american society yeah if we don't do that then we're we're pretty much fooling ourselves and there's a tendency to to dismiss and to overlook many of the aspects that are right in front of us
0: he is a professor of history at the university of new mexico and an elon college alumni along with yours truly i want to thank dr robert jefferson for being on the show dr jefferson thanks again for coming on the show
8: thank you for having me
0: To understand the events of 1-6, you need only to look to history, sometimes even recent history, to get a clearer view of the environments that breed times like this. Dr. Luis Herrera Vila is a historian of the Cold War in Latin America with an emphasis on conservative, anti-communist, and extreme right movements. He sets a historical stage for us. You study the rise and fall of governments and movements in Latin America. As you look back on January 6th and what led up to it, how close do you think the U.S. got to a real coup of some kind?
9: One of the usual parameters for defining an event as a coup is usually the outcome, whether it is successful or not. But, of course, that is insufficient since, in, at least in Latin American history, there have been you know multiple coup attempts against both military and civilian governments. And one way to think about the events of January 6th as a coup, first, one could be the intent that some of the forces, and organizations involved had with storming the Capitol. They were clearly there not to have a civilized conversation with elected officials. If we call it a coup or not, it is a process that failed. But the intention of some of the actors is very important to take into account. They were and continue to be believers in this conspiracy theory, the famous or infamous QAnon Conspiracy theory mm-hmm. about the existence of corrupt elites that are in cahoots with forces of globalism, forces of communism, even Judaism. And that these elites have basically betrayed the American people and what was needed was forceful removal of these elites from power.
0: As you were watching and listening to that day unfold, are there any other moments in history that were coming to your mind?
9: This is perhaps one instance of a very American coup in U.S. territory, which is something that we should also start thinking about, right? It seemed to have been playing a script of who's in which the U.S. has been part of the instigating forces. Uh, But this time around, it happened here. And with ideas defending certain values, such as American patriotism and liberty and sovereignty of the American people, Mm -hmm. and of course, twisting them to overthrow the established government, interrupt democratic institutions, and institute martial law, and fundamentally open the path for a a second Trump president.
0: How is that uniquely American, what happened on the 6th?
9: One thing that is, I think, uniquely American is the role that these right wing forces, such as the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the role that they played in instigating, mobilizing their own troops, with a very particular discourse that is not fundamentally a discourse that we can trace back to the original populist movement in the united states that also denounced the corruption of elites and particularly the corruption also of multinational companies that had a very strong racial component and i think that the role that racism white supremacist groups and American uh, sort of interpretations of fascism have made their way into in the environment that created this coup that is very, very American phenomenon.
0: And Trump used a lot of fear-based rhetoric. He, he drummed up hatred for news reporters and the media. He made a promise of a return to former glory. So those are the kinds of things that you hear other dictatorial leaders talking about as they come to power. Are there any other signals you saw in Trump's presidency that came from that same dictator playbook?
9: It was certainly important for fascist dictators, the classic examples of uh, Mussolini in Italy and Hitler in Germany, right? The restoration of a great past. That is certainly part of the uh, Trumpist script. But other aspects, I would say, is the fact that Trump's followers, they created this idea, I would call it a myth of Trump as an authoritarian leader, Hmm. right, as a potential dictator. What many of these extremist groups were hoping for and and are still hoping for is that Trump, again, would subvert the democratic order, call for martial law, and fundamentally install himself as a dictator that would banish the Democrats and any other dissenters that would send them to Guantanamo to be executed, right? Mm -hmm. This was part of the rhetoric that those movements were mobilizing.
0: When we just had the inauguration, power was transferred Mm -hmm. peacefully. Are we out of the woods from a historical perspective?
9: I would say that at least in terms of the threat of more violence or the threat of, let's say, other attempts to undermine the current administration or even undermine the conduct of democratic government, I don't think the threat is gone. They do not have the support anymore of the White House. But we might, I think, find out that in the end, they don't necessarily need Trump mm. to uh, continue their activities in carrying out these agendas. It is possible that these uh, movements will become less visible, but they're not going away anytime soon. These groups are not new. Yes. But these tendencies in American society are as old as the founding of this country.
0: I read a piece in the Washington Post today that speaks of pundits and Republican lawmakers and Republican leadership decrying President Biden's call against white supremacy they say an attack on white supremacy is an attack on conservatism what are we to do when even some Republicans themselves are likening associating conservatism with white supremacy
9: I mean I know a little bit about the conservative movement in the United States it's historically it's a very uh, diverse movement, yeah. right? Intellectually, politically, but when these Republican politicians and their bases are so wedded to the idea of white supremacy, here we have a serious issue. I don't think there's space to negotiate white supremacy.
0: Yes. You know, lawmakers are considering new domestic terrorism measures and human rights advocates oppose them. They're saying that these kinds of laws that are intended for white supremacists and would-be terrorists in this moment, in the end, they're used to target other communities. What do you think about that?
9: I think it would be much better to try to find other ways to tackle the problem of political extremism in American society. Legislation about terrorism is usually goes counter to considerations of civil rights, and considerations of due process, it can very easily be turned against other people that were not the intended targets.
0: He is Professor of History at the University of New Mexico, Professor Luis Herrán Avila. Thank you so much for talking with me. Would you please come back on the show again?
9: Absolutely, and thank you for having me in the show.
0: The 55th legislature is open, and YNMG is back at it with coverage of what's happening at the Roundhouse. Kicking it off is none other than Jeff Proctor from The Santa Fe Reporter, one of our collaborators along with New Mexico PBS. Jeff, how is it going?
10: It is going, Khalil. Thanks for asking.
0: Yes, I hear you. We're back in the saddle again, and so is the legislative session. And, you know, examining the landscape and potential for bills passed and issues addressed, I want to look at small-dollar storefront lending, or what is more infamously known as predatory lending. You and one of your colleagues, Catherine Lewin, just wrote a really excellent piece in The Reporter on this issue. So set the stage on why this is uniquely an important issue and what the Roundhouse can do about it.
10: Essentially, what we're talking about here are what folks used to think of as payday loans and title loans. In other words, you could walk into a storefront with a pay stub or the title to your vehicle and get a loan at an incredibly high interest rate because you needed cash right now. Mm -hmm. So that has existed in New Mexico For decades and decades. The industry often refers to these as installment loans. You pay them back in installments and the interest compounds over time. The situation we're in now is that payday loans really don't exist in New Mexico anymore, but these small dollar installment loans do. There has been a long history of a lack of regulatory framework for this industry in New Mexico, we used to have what was called a usury statute in the state, hmm. which set caps on all different types of loans. And when I say caps, I mean above a certain interest rate, you weren't allowed to charge. Okay. So that cap went away some decades ago. That's problematic in a place like this because, of course, we deal with issues of lack of access to the American dream and generational poverty in a way that very few other states do. So anyway, fast forward to the late kind of 2000s, there began to be an effort among some legislators and the attorney general at the time, Gary King, to start regulating this industry. There had been all kinds of horror stories and an effort started to try to capped the amount of interest that these companies could charge. It essentially went nowhere as the industry, which, of course, makes tons of money, paid a bunch of lobbyists and showered campaign cash all over both sides of the aisle. In 2017, the issue came to a bit of a head and the legislature passed what it called a compromise that did cap the interest rate annually at 175 percent.
0: Now. You know, we're in the midst of COVID, which has devastating effects on the economy. Does that increase the likelihood of the legislation passing of capping it at 35, 36 percent?
10: Some legislators feel a sense of urgency now, given the economic devastation that the coronavirus pandemic has wrought. And just quickly, in case we didn't put a fine enough point on it for listeners, there is a bill that's been pre-filed that would cap the rate at 36%. There's an important distinction with this year's bill. It's not just the interest rate that could be a maximum of 36% for the year. It also includes all of the fees, Mm. and it's an all-in 36%. That would be the absolute highest with every piece that can get attached to one of these loans. And then the other bit of sort of hope comes from the little bit of landscape shift that we've seen in the legislature. Previously, we've seen some blockage of reform efforts in this sector from some of the more conservative Democrats in both chambers. And, of course, a handful of them were bounced out during primary season in 2020 by more progressive-leaning candidates. So those two factors have some of the reform advocates and some of the reform-minded legislators feeling like this actually has a chance this year. The last bit is that the day our story ran – the governor included this issue on her list of legislative priorities
0: okay It's interesting because from your reporting, you know, you found that a majority of these storefront lenders are in low-income areas, heavily Native and Latino. That seems to keep the cycle of this generational poverty located in specific places. And to me, that feels a little bit dubious. If lawmakers want to do something about economic equality, they should really look there with more scrutiny. Tell me, why did you all point that out in your reporting?
10: I mean, it's important to think about the clientele for these kinds of storefront lenders. The Mm -hmm. idea is to get somebody in the door, have them take one of these loans and then re-up the loan later on. It's kind of a circular or cyclical way of getting people to continue to pay these exorbitant interest rates. At least in Santa Fe County, we decided to just take a look and see if we could get some empirical data showing where in those two counties, these kinds of companies were doing business and to the abiding shock of exactly no one who has followed this issue over the course of a number of years. We found, for example, that in Santa Fe, on the south side, where you've got a much higher prevalence of non-white communities and a much higher prevalence of folks living in much, much lower tax brackets and this is according to census data it's not something we just made up you see a huge prevalence of these stores and if you go up to the plaza or the downtown area you couldn't find one with a gps locator
0: he is jeff proctor with the santa fe reporter the article is called the Wait." he wrote that with Catherine lewin jeff thank you so much for being with me my friend we're going to keep an eye on this thanks for having me The State of the State Address is coming up next week. The team behind your New Mexico government is joining journalists from all around New Mexico to fact-check the speech and provide context. Find that on KUNM.org. Youth Poet Laureate Amanda Gorman told us that America isn't broken, but simply unfinished. As the Constitution was being ratified, Benjamin Franklin had concerns but signed his name to what he called an imperfect document— As this nation aged, those imperfections have been made clear, and sometimes steps were taken to correct or amend it. If we really are to move forward, it's past time that we evolve it again so that this imperfect document fits more with today's imperfect America. Next week on No More Normal, we take a look at our common purpose, a document that may hold some keys to our future. We want to thank all of our guests for offering their experience and expertise to us. We greatly appreciate it. Super thanks to Jazz Tone, the producer, Cheo, Dom Life, and Olad Records for providing music for the show. Khaki, Pope Yes Yes Y'all, and Bigawat produced some of the show's themes. Many thanks this week to artist Scott Green from Bernalillo for allowing us to use an image of his painting to represent this week's show online. No More Normal is executive produced by Marisa DeMarco. It's produced and hosted by yours truly. Taylor Velasquez handles our socials and helps with the editing. Shout out to Yasmin Khan and Megan Kamerick for pitching in to help with the editing as well. Thank you both very, very much. I'm Khalil E. For everyone here at No More Normal, thanks for listening.